That is utterly terrifying. <laughs> That's really scary. It feels like it's coming out of the swamp. It reminds me a little bit of the, the Predator, with a sort of croakiness. Yeah, the clicks. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of, um, you know, in Neverending Story, the little snarling wolf under in the, little, the hole there, and the scary eyes, the animatronic <laughs> snarling wolf. <laughs> right. I reckon some listeners will be familiar with this guy. That suggests it's from a country which consumes podcasts. In the English language, yeah. Mm, it's either Canada, America, Australia, or the UK. Or New Zealand. Or New Zealand, although I don't think we have many listeners in New Zealand. I don't know, probably not. <laughs> I can't remember. So I think it's some kind of warty, babbly toad-looking thing. It's a toad. I think it's like a medium-sized toad. It lives most of its life underground. Uh, the spadefoot toad. I feel like that's a pretty good guess. It's not right, but it's a pretty good guess. No, this was... Thanks, mate. What you were listening to was the gopher frog, Lithobates capito. Oh. Which is, you know, tan grey, so sort of potentially toady coloration. It's not a, not a showy frog. Warty, so, you know, you got, you got that much. This is good. <laughs> <laughs> what are we talking, like, seven and a half sort of centimetres? Where's it from? Well, this is why I picked it. It lives down in Florida, which is, as people will find out, where we're what we're talking about today. So I thought we'd we'd have the sounds of Florida introducing an episode that we chat about Florida stuff. Yeah, this frog could actually end up being very relevant to the papers we're discussing because right? of the intermediate host yeah, thing inside okay. this crawling little warty boy. It makes terrifying noises. Could be the. Uh, Critical missing step for what we're about to talk about. Yeah, the very that is extremely apt. Okay, so in this episode, although I don't think it goes all the way down to the very bottom of Florida, so I mean, it's not the whole. <laughs> it's, not, it's not the whole. Maybe story. one day then. Anyway, anyway, people don't know what we're talking about. So, this episode is a patron episode for Dr. Skylar Hopkins. So, thank you very much. This is an episode about parasites because Dr. Hopkins is a parasitologist and so yeah we've had a couple of very specific papers suggested us so thank you very much for that extremely awesome to have actual like suggestions of precise papers we can choose much like the last episode actually and so we've settled on two papers all about this introduced parasite in the florida everglades so just to introduce the first one it's by miller kinsella snow falk reed guts mazotti gaia romagosa in 2020 highly competent native snake hosts extend the range of an introduced parasite beyond its invasive burmese python host published in ecosphere so as we seem to do quite frequently on the podcast, we're talking about the invasive Burmese python There's in the Florida Everglades. just a lot of research on invasive species, isn't there? Either because yeah. they present interesting natural experiments of what happens when you put this animal in different place, go selection pressure, go trophic cascade, go nightmarish hellscape where animals are dealing with something they're completely naive to. Or sometimes it's because it has like very direct economic implications and therefore is easy to justify looking at because money talks. 
money does talk. And um, yeah, like you say, obviously when invasive species are introduced to an environment, there's all these changes to the way that species interact. They're obviously eating things, they're being eaten by things. But I think something which a lot of people probably don't consider straight off the bat is the fact that when an introduced species finds itself in a new area, it may have parasites on its body, which is... Yeah, yeah, hitchhikers, which have been brought from their foreign lands into the place that they've been introduced. And as it turns out, the Burmese pythons, which escaped captivity in the 80s and have been proliferating in the Everglades in southern Florida ever since, causing extinctions and chaos and carnage. It turns out they had a little bit of a hitchhiker of their own. So you said extinctions. Do we have confirmation that they've actually pushed things over the edge? Like, I know that there's been very good documented evidence of them having like substantial population effects but like all the way to i suppose extirpation versus extinction sort of thing like probably more local extinctions okay yeah i just didn't know if we had like a brown tree snake scenario or a no yeah maybe getting uh, rid of sort of more widely spread species locally sort of scenario yeah i think it's still dramatic declines rather than uh but your point still stands because this is something that can happen with invasive species and sometimes it's quite hard to confirm whether it's happened or not especially in somewhere like the everglades that is not the easiest place to survey for beasties in no and uh, i have it on good authority from some burmese python trackers and hunters that i've met recently that actually it's very hard to find them you can walk around for six months apparently and only see one i'd believe it (laughs) yeah So yeah, they're hard to find. And yeah, thanks for correcting me on that. They haven't caused extinctions. You're right. That's the brown tree snake in Guam that's caused like 13 extinctions. But Burmese pythons, I don't, as far as I can tell, haven't yet caused any extinctions. But they are causing dramatic declines, chaos and carnage. And yeah, they bring with them this parasite. Lovely little parasite. Yeah, apparently in 85% of cases in which an introduced parasite infects native animals, the parasite is more virulent in the native host compared to... The non-native host. So you'd kind of expect to see that, right? If a parasite finds its way to a new environment, the animals there, they haven't evolved alongside it. They haven't evolved sort of adaptations to lessen their impacts. So that shows. I don't know. I I, I do find this slightly surprising in some ways because, yes, so you've got this host naivety sort of angle where they don't have the defences against the parasite. But equally, some of these parasites are so ludicrously specialised in their life cycle or whatever that i'm amazed how well some of them are able to jump host species and how their life cycle sort of transplants into a completely new environment obviously there's probably quite a lot of similarities between native burmese habitat and the everglades otherwise the pythons wouldn't be about doing as well as they are but it's still quite remarkable because parasites are interacting not just with the landscape and the sort of environmental conditions but and not just one species that they're familiar with but all these other species and their sort of intermediate step species and their their whole process the whole life cycle is so much more complicated it's amazing it works at all let alone when it's transplanted somewhere completely new but i suppose for every parasite that succeeds maybe there's 20 that don't like i don't know the balance because that's a very hard thing to sample you're never going to be looking at the ones that aren't there because that's (laughs) <laughs> there's nothing to look at so yeah there maybe is that bias where it's like would we even know if they'd been introduced but hadn't been successful right because have we got good documentation on the parasite loads of burmese pythons in their native range 
<laughs> no. Yeah, probably not. Tend not to have brilliant data from... Yeah, this is the other issue with some of this invasive species research is it's a little bit skewed. <laughs> so the comparisons become more difficult to make. So your point being that, yeah, it seems almost unlikely that these very specific host interactions would be able to take place. Right, that would be my gut feeling, pun intended. But I counter that point because I would say, Ben... What is a snake? A snake's a snake, right? A snake's just a tube of meat with the same organs everywhere. That's worldwide. true. Yeah. But yeah, to be honest, it's kind of one of those things where whichever way the introduction of this paper had gone, you could totally buy it. Like it could be really yeah. difficult for them to establish. It could be really easy. But as it turns out, it would seem that generally, by and large, it's quite easy. And they use an example in the paper, which I thought was quite cool. There's this swim bladder nematode introduced to Europe by the Japanese eel, which now infects the native European eel, which is a species we have here. I've caught them while I've been fishing. They're very, very gloopy, slimy creatures. <laughs> but they're also incredible. Eely. I love eels. They're the snakiest of fish. So, um, you know, <laughs> so naturally, naturally have an affinity. Naturally yeah. a fan. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's why I liked sirens so much, because they bridged the gap between <laughs> pathology and eels. But um, anyway, so this Japanese eel came to Europe and its swim bladder nematode affected the native European eel and in the Japanese eels which have co-adapted with this nematode it doesn't really have any effect it's like whatever it obviously probably affects their fitness a little bit but they can just carry on quite comfortable hitchhiking yeah yeah it's not impacting them they're like well used to having them conversely the European eel which doesn't no, doesn't share this evolutionary history with the swim bladder nematode. When they get into the European eel, there's loads of worms. They proliferate. They have tons of them. The burden is high and it causes damage to swim bladder function. So, you know, if you're a fish and you damage your swim bladder, that's not good because that is the organ in charge of keeping you the right degree of buoyant. If it gets damaged, you're either going to sink or float, which is not what you want. And apparently in European eels, if they get infected with this uh, swim, bladder, swim bladder nematode, they uh, are less able to make their spawning migrations. They can't get to the Sargasso Sea. They can't spawn. And the next generation of European eels is impacted, mm. which is obviously negative. So that's an example. of. But the flip side is that potentially that the ones that do make it are the more resistant to it. And you have this quite apparent selective pressure that you would hope that the parasite impact would lessen over time because of just sort of yes. natural selection from them having an impact. Whether yeah, the as as population isn't... is robust enough to take that selective pressure is a whole other question. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this Especially... is why it's so important to give these animal space and sort of break so there is that buffer yeah especially as they are already declining and right. overfished exactly eels. so um yeah as we've said parasites come to the new area infect new animals the parasite that we're actually going to be talking <laughs> about they are brought along to the new area yeah yeah they don't, <laughs> they don't have a choice here volition. no they can't Doubly they can't so. do anything by themselves but yeah so this parasite that we're talking about is called Raliatella orientalis, which is a peculiar looking little creature that belongs to a group of parasites called Pentastomidae, more commonly known as tongueworms. And yeah, this parasite, they're generally found in the lungs of reptiles in the old world, so Asia and Africa. It's known to infect snakes as its sort of final host. And its intermediate host, which you were talking about earlier, Ben, it will be in another animal before it gets eaten by something and then eventually... 
it tunnels out of the snake's digestive system and finds its way to the lung. But we don't know what that intermediate animal yeah, that the snake mystery. has to eat is. Mm. It's a mystery. However, there is some it's heavily assumed to be something that snakes eat. <laughs> Otherwise, yes. it would be tricky to get inside a snake. <laughs> However, yeah, that exactly. does not really narrow things down because there are a lot of snakes and they eat a lot of stuff. If not yeah. everything given a certain size. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And these parasites, these pentastone parasites are actually crustaceans, weirdly. And the way that they work is they feed on... I'm sorry, they're crustaceans? Yeah, they're crustaceans. They look like little maggots. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. But they're like, when they're adults in their final form, they're quite long. They look like an elongated maggot. Hmm. And they feed on blood from capillary beds in the lungs. So they tunnel their way to the lungs and then they suck on the blood in the capillaries. It's a grisly life. And that can cause problems, obviously. If there's something in your lungs sucking out your blood, it's not ideal. It can cause severe problems for the animals they inhabit. The adults can get up to 15 centimetres long. Obviously, if they're that long, they can block respiratory passages and cause suffocation, which just... Yeah, depending on the size of the host. Because this is the other thing you're talking about, like parasite size relative to host size. Bigger host capacity for bigger parasite. Bigger parasite capacity for higher fecundity and more egg-laying and basically more rapid reproduction and expansion. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And the other thing, beyond just causing a blockage in the lung, they have these like little hooks. They have two pairs of hooks that they use to sort of hook into lung tissue. Obviously, they're hooking into the lungs directly. That can cause injury. Yeah, lungs are pretty blood. delicate organs as they go. <laughs> yeah, they weren't designed to have a giant, well, not a giant, but a small... Comparatively giant yeah, parasite strapped to the side of them. crustacean scratching around in there and um so yeah that causes like scratches and cuts inside the lungs which causes bleeding which is obviously bad and then beyond that when they grow they molt and they molt little cuticles bits of skin shed and that just sticks around in the lungs obviously because the snakes don't have a means by which to remove well they probably do have a means by which to remove some gunk in the lungs but a lot of it's bad and as it goes rotten it can cause putrid pneumonia yeah grim way to go basically. And I think what's also important is it's not just, oh, parasite causes, you know, mortality of snake, it's all whatever host. It's also this like sublethal cost, this sort of morbidity. So snakes with that parasite may not be as capable and fit and strong as ones without, right? It's not necessarily just a killing thing. It can be a weakening. Yeah, weakening is a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. So the authors of this paper, they were like, okay, what is the prevalence of this Raleigh orientalis? And is it being spread by pythons or is it being spread by native snakes to native snakes? Exactly. And so in order to find that out, they looked through the lungs of over 1,000 Burmese pythons. And these are Burmese pythons, which are collected and put down as part of the uh, control strategy that's going on in the Everglades to try and reduce the impact of this invasive species. But they also had 500 native snakes and they were looking in all of these lungs. Native snakes were from roadkills, interestingly, too, which is a nice double use of finding a dead snake on a road. Yeah, they weren't catching and killing native snakes to look in their lungs. They were, as Ben said, finding ones when over on the road, which uh, unfortunately is continuously easy. Mm. But yeah, they're a good use for them. And uh, yeah, like of the sort of 500 indigenous snakes they looked at, they found that there was tongue worms, which is another name for these things, in 13 
native snake species, which was all of the ones they looked at. There were some other studies where they found snakes lacking in tongue worms, but yeah. Well, no, I think they actually found it in 26 different species, but it was the 13 oh. had enough to actually do some stats on. Ah, so you had some yeah, single right. instances of uh, native snakes where they were looking. So yeah, that's even worse. 26 species of snake all have got this introduced parasite in their lung. It, well, Interestingly, I saw the northernmost of which was the corn snake, Panthrophus guttatus, which is, uh, you know, you don't often see papers about corn snakes, but they are also hosts of this worm. And the most northern one was pretty much 350 kilometers north of the northernmost infected python. So as you said, Ben, they wanted to find out if this parasite was spreading through both pythons and native snakes. And the fact that the parasites edge of influence is 350 kilometers north of the Burmese python suggests that, that yes quite clearly they are yeah i mean that's a pretty big slam dunk isn't it because even if that one wasn't some weird fluke that uh, a bird scooped up a snake and took it 350 kilometers north it wasn't exactly alone okay there's this weird instance but there were others that were i don't know just judging by the map got to have been what 300 kilometers north 200 250 like yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's I think it's pretty decided that this parasite is existing in decent numbers and decent prevalence, sorry, outside of python affected areas. Yeah, and we talked a little bit ago about the fact that sometimes they can be bigger, parasites can be larger in species which are sort of not accustomed to them and that was the case here. The yeah. parasites that were found in native snakes were actually bigger compared to the parasites found in Burmese pythons and that means that the females can get much larger and lay more eggs and then yeah more parasites down the road there were some stuff about the different kinds of snakes and their kind of um, predation modes and how that influenced the prevalence of yeah. having these this parasites. was an interesting I really like this aspect because you talked about the intermediate stage being unknown well the best way of working out what it could be is to look at what the snakes eat and sort of back work it. Where could this parasite have come from? So what did we have? We had terrestrial ambush predators. It was pretty prevalent in terrestrial yep. wide foraging non-constrictors yep. and aquatic non-constricting frog eaters. Yeah. So what sort of species are we talking about? What species fit into those groups? You're talking about things like corn snakes. You're talking about things like dry marcons, dry marcons, snakes, I think. Yep. Yeah, also like Nerodia species, although I suppose they're probably actually more fish eaters than they are frogs. Some frogs, hmm. No, they've got Nerodia as aquatic non-constructing fish eater. I've, I found it in the paper now. Two different species of Nerodia and uh, Famnophis. Oh, they're aquatic non-constricting fish eaters. Okay, well, they actually had a lower prevalence. The fish eating snakes had the least prevalence. But so the frog eating of... Nerodia had a higher prevalence. Pre <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> prevalence. <laughs> If you're a water snake and you're eating frogs, you're more likely to have the yes. parasite than if you're a water snake that eats Dramatically fish, so. And they do bring yeah. that up later on in the discussion, but basically it seems like fish is a very unlikely intermediate host for these guys. Yeah, there's some suggestion that it's frogs, but it also may be like Could be gopher mice. frogs, who knows? Could be gopher <laughs> frogs. But yeah, there's another paper from Australia where they found that it was most... Because this parasite's also found its way to Australia, mm. which where it also shouldn't be. And there was a paper from there where they were saying that it was most prevalent in frog-eating snakes. Where So they were assuming it was a frog as an intermediate host. But Seems yeah, like we say, we don't have confirmation. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure that will come out 
very soon. But anyway, all of this is kind of a little bit bleak, isn't it, really? Like, oh, there's this invasive species. Oh, that's bad. Oh, look at all these impacts it's having on the native animals it directly interacts with. And then it's like, oh, but wait, the buck doesn't stop there. Actually, there's also this parasite which is infecting native species. Which is which we kind of need way to harder to control, too, because this thing, with its prevalence and just ability to infect native snakes, is outpacing Burmese python expansion. Like, these things are decoupled now. <laughs> you could get rid of all the pythons and that wouldn't stop this parasite in the native snake population. Yeah, because this was like the other thing. They compared, of... like, prevalence in the sort of core area versus invasion front, they called it. And it didn't seem like the prevalence of the parasite was super connected to the prevalence of pythons, necessarily, right? Like, it feels... I got the impression that these two things have separated at this point... Yeah. You know, I mean, it says in the title, this highly competent native snake host. Like, the native snakes are doing great for these pythons. Uh, these pythons, these parasites. They certainly are. And it doubles down yeah. on the pythons actually not being as good a host, or at least having a mechanism to mitigate the size and number of them. Mm. Which is what you were saying at the very beginning, with this sort of naive native population versus a... Uh, in this case, it's the invasive population of pythons being a bit more yeah. resistant to them, resilient to them. The way I look at it is that, like, along with the Biomese pythons being introduced, they've introduced an additional evolutionary inconvenience for the snakes that live there, where they've got to, like, now try and deal with this parasite, yeah. which is and maybe frogs infecting them. If they're the intermediate. Maybe frogs too, yeah. yeah, if there's an intermediate phase, yeah, which we don't know anything about. So, and maybe um, native parasites. Stuff. Oh, as a point maybe of competition. the parasites are being outcompeted. Oh, it's just it's carnage, isn't it? I know. It? Oh, ecosystems, how complex. Yeah. <laughs> so let's just talk briefly. There's, you know, this is a bit bleak, but there's this other paper, which is a case report. So this is by Walden, Iredale, Childress, and Wellahan and Osiboff in 2020. And this is case report, invasive pentastomes, Raliatella orientalis in a free-ranging banded water snake. And this was published in Frontiers in Veterinary Science. So this was a paper written by vets about this parasite. And um, the beginning of the story behind this paper is quite nuts. I'm not sure what the exact circumstances were, whether or not they caught a snake. But anyway, an adult female wild uh, banded water snake, which is Nerodia fasciata, was found. But it was in like an emaciated state. It looked very thin, really weak. And it couldn't flip itself over if you turned it upside down, which is like... Number one indicator that a snake is seriously, seriously out. out of sorts. Yeah. yeah. If you can turn a snake upside down, it's either anesthetized or it's probably not coming back. Or it's pretending to be dead. Or, yeah, of course, it's pretending to be dead. But in this case, the snake was genuinely not pretending. It was dying. And, yeah, the snake was actually regurgitated by another snake. So a black racer, which is Kaluba constrictor. And this took place in Alachua in Florida, which is a county, Alachua. Oh gosh, I don't know how you pronounce that. But anyway. Location-wise, way further north than the stuff we were talking about in the previous paper. That's the crucial thing, yeah. It's like at least one county further north, isn't it? From where they found the parasites, yes, one or two counties further north and like decent-sized yeah. counties at that. Anyway, that's bad. But they tried to help this snake because they were vets. And obviously this is published in the vet journal. They were trying to treat it. They couldn't. It died. And then once it died, they opened it up. And yeah, they found that the esophagus and the lungs. So, you know, the pipe that leads down the throat was also had a parasite in it. And the lungs were riddled with these pentastone parasites. 
it just goes to show that what how long went by between these papers uh not even it was all in the same year but you know that's just another jump for this uh, species of parasite in a very well in a relatively short time which is just well yeah it sort of highlights that probably it's further up and it's uh, a sampling issue a uh, observation issue rather than a jumping to <laughs> two counties in a matter of months thing right yeah i suppose you're right yeah, yeah it's probably further north than that even exactly but yeah, it's just there's this, you know, these weird little parasites living in the lungs of Burmese pythons, transferring across to the lungs of native species, and uh, yeah, causing carnage. I don't know what happened about why this snake was regurgitated. I mean, if they caught the black racer, then it may have regurgitated its food as a stress response, or maybe it regurgitated because it got the sense that what it is it eaten was riddled with parasites. I wonder if, I guess. Uh, no, they need to go through their life cycle. I can't imagine there's going to be parasites tunneling out of a snake to go into another yeah, snake. Yeah, well, that's why I was I was sort of considering before when we said about indigo snakes, you can imagine an indigo snake taking a younger Burmese python or something along those lines, couldn't you? Yeah. What's also interesting is at the end of this paper, it does highlight a couple of other instances where this parasite has appeared in the US, not attached to the whole Burmese python situation, though where it's meant to have popped across with uh, Mediterranean geckos that uh, appeared in Texas in the 1980s, and potentially via the Cuban brown anole in uh, New Orleans in the sort of 40s and 50s. Right, and that's a different species, right? Yes, sorry, different species, same genus, yes, yes. This is like the sort of gecko version, whereas we're talking about the snake version. Right, yeah, which... They're about, their cousins are about. <laughs> yeah. It's not unheard of, but it's, yeah. Yeah. It's funny. You just don't think about parasites and then they end up with these cosmopolitan distributions via human means, exactly the same as other successful invasive species. Well, they're harder to see, aren't they? So, yeah, yeah you would miss them. They're hiding inside yeah. snakes. Yeah. Yeah, but I guess this opens the door for a raft of other papers about, you know, how these parasites are maybe affecting the behavior of native animals, yep. whether... In the long term, you could compare Burmese pythons with them without parasites, their fitness, their behavior, all that kind of stuff. You could do the same for native species, see if they're more dramatically impacted, you know. And then as time goes on, does the infection burden reduce or does the effect on their behavior reduce? Are they kind of slowly adapting to Mm -hmm. these things? There's a whole suite of new questions that kind of are born out of this kind of grisly discovery. It is. It is the ultimate natural experiment in a lot of ways. (laughs) It's just yeah. not the best way of doing it but yeah as it's happening you might as well study it yeah exactly all right well um i think that's about it for our uh, patron selected episode so um yeah yeah thank you very much to dr skylar hopkins for those suggestions fascinating as ever to dip our toes in the world of parasitology if a little bit terrifying and uh yeah. grim in places but it's damn interesting yeah, it's cool. Um, have you got any other business for this week, Ben? I don't know. Neither do I. So, um, yeah, I think that's about it, really. I think all that remains to be said is if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can. If we've made a mistake, then you can get in touch herphighlights at gmail.com or if you've got any questions, we're on social media. Find us at herphighlights. Yeah, and that's it. Excellent. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you for listening. <laughs>